0: Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR Political Director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. Good evening and welcome to our Conversation with the Candidates series. I'm Adam Sexton, and our guest this evening is former Congressman John Delaney. Tonight, we'll be getting to know Representative Delaney and where he stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidate some questions, and then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we get to that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. John Delaney was born in Woodridge, New Jersey in 1963. He graduated from Columbia University and has a law degree from Georgetown. After law school, Delaney launched two companies that ended up on the New York Stock Exchange, For his first business, he was the youngest CEO of a publicly traded company. His second was focused on providing loans to small and mid-sized businesses, and the Obama administration gave it the Bank Enterprise Award for investments made in low-income communities. In 2012, he was elected to Congress from Maryland and served three terms, saying he worked hard for veterans, stronger public education, and to combat the opioid crisis. Delaney has served on the board of directors for several nonprofits, such as the National Symphony Orchestra and the Boys and Girls Club. He also founded a nonprofit that advocates for economic development and job creation in his home state. Delaney is married and has four children. Congressman, thanks for joining yeah, us this thanks evening. Thanks Appreciate me. it. So let's jump right into this. Uh, it's a crowded Democratic field, still growing. Don't know how large it'll get, maybe yeah. two dozen or more candidates. How do you stand out in a field that already has uh, big guys like Bernie Sanders?
1: Well, I'm a problem solver, right? I'm very focused on solving problems. I've been doing that my whole life. I'm focused on getting really big things done for our future. As an entrepreneur, I'm a builder. I tend to think about where the world is going, and I've got big ideas to make the future for my kids and your kids better. I want to restore a sense of common purpose to who we are as a country. I think one of the most important issues in this country right now is how divided we are. And I'm running to restore a sense of moral decency to the presidency. So that message, a problem solver who's focused on bringing people together to get things done, I think that's very unique from what we're seeing with the rest of the field.
0: You were the first candidate into the race all the way back in 2017. Arguably, you've heard from more voters for longer than anyone else who's in the race. So what are the voters most concerned about right now?
1: I think at the end of the day, voters are concerned about things that really affect their lives, right, as they should be. Whether it's education, right, what's going on with their kids and in school, whether their job and their pay, what's happening in the workplace. They're worried about how changes like automation and things like that are affecting you know, their job and the opportunities for their kids. They're worried about their health care. They see pharmaceutical prices going up, opioid addiction that's ravaging our country. You know, they see it in their community. They worry, will there be jobs for their kids in their communities. I mean, they're worried about those basic kitchen table issues that really affect their lives. They're not as worried about a lot of the issues we all talk about in politics sometimes. They're generally focused on things that really matter to them and their families.
0: You want to uh, expand service opportunities for America's youth. Tell us about that plan that you have. uh.
1: So I'm going to launch an initiative to give every kid who graduates from high school an opportunity to serve their country. Not mandatory, but kind of an exciting incentive-based program where they could sign up for national service, They could either join the military or they could do community service or they could do a whole new program around infrastructure, rebuilding our national parks, that kind of stuff. Kids will be mixed with each other from all over the country. They'll get skills. It'll help get them ready for college if that's what they want to do. Or if they just want to get a job, they'll actually get a certificate out of it. And I think would be something that really brings us together
0: national debt right now is at $22 trillion, federal deficits are exploding. Uh, Every one of the Democrats has an ambitious agenda they want to achieve. How do you bring that agenda into reality and also reduce our national
1: debt? You have to to tell the American people how you're going to pay for things. That's one of the things that's unique about me. Whenever I lay out a program, I'm like, this is how I'm going to pay for it. Because I think the debt we're leaving our children is absolutely unpayable. We have to change the fiscal trajectory of this country. And this last tax cut that went through in the Congress, the Trump tax cut, made the situation worse. I mean, we're running huge deficits at a time when the economy is actually pretty good. So my proposal is to lower our deficits to about 2% of our economy, because if we do that and our economy can grow at at least 25 to 3%, which I believe it can under my policies, the debt as a percentage of our economy will go down and we'll, we'll leave our children a debt that they can handle.
0: You also want to emphasize research and development. Which industries get that money under a President Delaney?
1: Well, so I want to continue all the good investments we make in life sciences through things like the NIH, but I want to dramatically increase our investments in clean energy research. If you look at the problem we have with climate change, which is very significant, and we need to do something about right away, which is why I introduced the only bipartisan carbon tax bill in the Congress. That's right, a bipartisan carbon tax bill. And I believe I can get that done in my first year. But that's not gonna solve the problem. We actually have to almost innovate our way out of the problem, just like the American people have done historically. And so the best way for us to do that is with a five-fold increase in the Department of Energy research budget around energy storage, transmission technologies, and maybe the most exciting technologies that are out there are called negative emissions technologies. These are actually machines that take carbon out of the atmosphere. They're much more promising than people think, But they're too expensive right now, so we need more innovation to bring down the cost so they become a practical solution. So my approach to to climate change is to slow it down dramatically with a carbon tax, which I believe I can get passed in my first year as presidency. With every Democrat and all the Republicans in coastal states, that coalition can get a carbon tax bill passed. And then I want a moonshot-type effort around research. So we have breakthroughs in storage, transmission and negative emissions technologies so that we can actually innovate ourselves out of this problem across the long term. Let's talk briefly about foreign policy
0: here. Uh, We're less than two decades removed from 9-11 and you don't hear a lot of talk about international terrorism anymore. How much of a priority would that be in your administration?
1: Well, you know, it's a big priority but it involves engaging around the world. I mean, the way we create a world that's more secure and more peaceful for our citizens and for citizens all around the world is by engaging with our allies, which is something that the current president is not doing. He doesn't value our allies the way prior presidents have, and he doesn't have a framework about how we deal with foreign policy that involves the U.S. engaging with our allies. It's, a, it's always a significant risk. It's one of the top priorities of the, of the president of the United States, if not the number one priority, to keep the American people safe and it'll be a big priority in my administration.
0: Okay, Congressman Delaney, we're gonna continue this conversation in a moment. Coming up after the break, we'll bring our studio audience into the conversation. Stay with us.
1: Hey, Facebook recently
0: made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it, just two taps brings you back in the know. Welcome back to Conversation with the Candidate and our candidate, former Congressman John Delaney. We're going to jump right into our town hall format here with our voters. And we're going to start with Grace Kennedy from Hudson. Uh, Welcome. Uh, (laughs) Welcome. Representative Delaney, do you think it's time for us to get out of Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria?
1: I do think we should get our troops home as soon as we practically can. But I think we need standards for each of those specific countries for what needs to be achieved before we bring our troops home. I mean, Afghanistan has been the longest war or engagement, if you will, that this country's ever had, right? We've been there for 18 years now. And the amount of investment we've made in that part of the world, in terms of the, the young men and women who we've lost, and the amount of taxpayer money that's been invested in those places, it is time to bring our troops home but we can't do it before we meet certain goals or milestones in those countries, because then everything we have done and all the sacrifices we've made, we could potentially lose any progress. So let's look at Syria, for example, because the president recently called to bring our troops back from Syria, but then he quickly reversed some of that decision, which was actually the right thing to do. He didn't consult with his advisors when he did it. He had a conversation with the leader of Turkey and made a decision kind of on the fly. That's not the way you make decisions to bring our troops home. So Syria, for example, I think three things have to be achieved before we bring our troops home. The first, we need assurances that the Kurds, who fought with us side by side in some of the most difficult battles in Syria, right, to, to, against ISIS, we have to get assurances from Turkey that they will not attack the Kurds. The Kurds were our allies in that battle, and we have to make sure that if we pull our troops out that these allies of ours are not suddenly attacked by turkey so that's one thing i would want to see the second thing i'd want to see is the fact that isis is really in fact defeated isis is a threat to the united states of america we've made tremendous progress right and it's basically at this point not an organized group and it's you know It's in disarray and, and uh, isn't really a substantial threat, but we're not completely finished as we know because we've seen some things. The other thing that we has, has to happen is, is Iran has a very, very significant footprint in that country right now, and we wanna make sure Syria is not just a puppet of Iran. So there's an example about how I think about it. Very specific goals that I wanna see achieved before we bring our troops completely out of those countries. And the same is true with Afghanistan.
0: Thank you. Okay. Thank, Thank you, Grace. We go to our next question from Gail Austin. Hey, Gail. No, I'm not Gail. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, the rundown was incorrect. So just to introduce yourself okay. and ask your question.
1: Dr. Dennis Shea. Dennis. Yes. Uh, as you're aware, there are over 50 million senior citizens in this country. And one of our problems, of course, is medical costs. What are your plans to reduce those? To reduce medical costs. So it's, yes. a, it's an important issue. <clears throat> and it it's Dennis, right? Yes. Did I hear that you're a doctor? Yes. Great. So um, not a medical doctor, not a medical doctor, but a doctor. So if you were thinking if you and I were sitting here thinking about the long term fiscal health of the United States of America, the number one issue we'd have to deal with is health care. Mm-hmm. Right. Healthcare is one sixth of the U.S. economy. If it was its own country, it'd be one of the largest countries in the world. And the rate of growth of health care expenditures has far exceeded the rate of growth of everything else in our economy. <clears throat> which is one of the reasons the american people haven't gotten a raise in so long because any increase in productivity in our economy has been absorbed by healthcare. So the question you're getting at Dennis, which is how do we control healthcare costs is so incredibly important. It's one of the reasons that I believe we need a universal healthcare system. Right and in many ways right now we have a form of a universal healthcare system. It's just a terrible system. And what I mean by that is every American can show up in an emergency room and actually get care by law, mm-hmm. but emergency room visits are 10 to 15 times more expensive than going to a primary care physician. So it's an example of how broken our healthcare system is. So I've proposed uh, that we have a universal healthcare system where everyone gets healthcare as a right. We leave Medicare alone. We create a new program for, for Americans that they get from when they're born to when they're 65. It's a basic government healthcare plan but they can also opt out of it or get supplemental programs very similar to what happens with Medicare. I think the best healthcare system for this country would involve a basic government plan that everyone gets as a right, so that if you're a low-income American, you have healthcare. If you're between jobs, you have healthcare. If you wanna go start a business, you have healthcare. If you're a a kind of a, a child that ages off a parent's plan, you have healthcare. Everyone should have healthcare as a right, but they also should have options right, to buy a commercial insurance plan if they want or to get a supplemental plan from a commercial insurance company. I think that kind of model with the right incentives around how care is delivered and the Affordable Care Act actually put in place a bunch of good things that we're starting to see some of the, the benefits of it in terms of healthcare costs. I think that type of a model will lead to a healthcare system in the future where we have universal access, where we have high quality, and where we start controlling costs. And I'm so glad you asked this question because when we think about healthcare, too many people just talk about access, right? How do we get the American people access? That's really important and we should have universal access, but we have to do some things to control costs. Pharmaceutical prices is another thing. I mean, we don't allow the federal government to negotiate with Medicare right now. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Imagine Walmart not being able to negotiate prices as the largest buyer of goods. Mm -hmm. But that's the position we've put the federal government with respect to Medicare. It cannot negotiate these prices. So that's one thing I'm gonna change. But the other thing I'm gonna change is I'm gonna make this kind of a global trade issue. Because one of the things that's happening right now is the United States of America, the citizens of the United States of America are effectively funding the whole pharmaceutical industry. But literally. Citizens in Germany and Spain in many cases they spend a third of what we do on pharmaceuticals And the reason for that is they have one person who negotiates the price So in Germany one person negotiates the price and they hammer down those prices <laughs> Wherever you buy pharmaceuticals in Germany you pay that price and in some ways what those countries do is they lo- they negotiate the prices below cost and then the pharmaceutical companies come to the United States of America and They jack up the prices Right, so we, you, the taxpayers of the United States of America are funding the entire global pharmaceutical industry. To some extent, the rest of the world is free riding against us or off us. And, and listen, I'm all for selling pharmaceuticals to poor countries at low prices, but I'm not for citizens in wealthy countries paying a third of what we do for pharmaceuticals. So I'm gonna make this a trade issue to ensure that the United States of America pays the same for pharmaceutical prices as the other wealthy countries in the world, the G20, if you will. So that's another issue related to healthcare costs.
0: Dr. Shea, thank you for the question. Our next question comes from Benjamin Pelletier of Nashua. Hi,
1: Representative Delaney. Hello, Benjamin. Uh, what is your plan to stop the opioid epidemic in states like New Hampshire? Well, it's, it's, such, a, uh, it's such an important question. And it was funny, I was just talking to, a, to a, a police officer, a member of law enforcement, right before I came out on the stage. And we were talking about what he sees in his day-to-day job in terms of how this is affecting our community. We talk about how adoptions are so up because you, you find these situations where both members of the household you know, have gotten caught up in this crisis and they're in rehab or you know worse. <coughs> and uh, it's really ravaging this country. I mean, we have about 200 people who die every day in the United States of America from addiction. And we all know opioids is a big part of that. First thing we gotta do is we gotta treat it like a public health crisis, because that's really what it is. It's not really a, a criminal justice issue, it's a public health issue. And we have to put the resources into the public health system, right, to deal with this issue. And it's actually really important that we do it, not just because of the number of people who are affected by it, but what it's doing to our communities. In other words, the cost of not dealing with this crisis is, is much greater than what it would cost us to deal with it. So I'm calling for a significant increase in the amount of funding for public health um, interactions and interventions in communities. There's a lot of things that are working in communities. There's a lot of nonprofits. There's a lot of community-based organizations that are working. And what the federal government needs to be doing is identifying the best practices, seeing what's working in communities, and putting more resources behind uh, those methods, right? But the other thing we got to deal with is we got to deal with all the economic dislocation that's going on in this country. Because unless we deal with that issue, right, there'll be something else, right? It won't be opioids, but it'll be some other issue. Meaning the conditions that exist in our communities create the environment where you can kind of have the epidemic that we're seeing. Right, so that's why one of the big agendas I have is to make sure there's investments in communities that are left behind, whether they be rural America or urban America, where people aren't investing, where there's no jobs, where there's a lot of despair. We need to get more people investing in these communities. So it starts with smart economic policies, right? It involves dealing with this as a public health issue and making sure we have the resources behind it. But it also involves accountability, right? I read in the paper this morning that one of the main manufacturers of opioids is gonna fall for bankruptcy, right? As they should, because they're being sued, as they should be, because these pharmaceutical companies knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing. So, great question. Thank you, Benjamin.
0: Thanks, Benjamin. Our next question comes from Lynn Ward-Healy of Bedford.
1: Hey, Lynn. Welcome. Glad to have you in New Hampshire again. Nice to be here. Um, how will a, progre- a moderate mm. such as yourself avoid being pulled to the progressive end of the party during this primary season? Well, thank you for that question. And, you know, I tend to not get caught up in these labels that much because I consider myself a problem solver, first and foremost. In other words, I want to get real things done that matter to the American people. So whether it's climate change or other issues that progressives really care about, for example, I have real solutions. So I'm just gonna stay in my solutions-oriented lane because when I look back at American history, right, I see that all the great things we've ever done, all the enduring things that we've done that have really transformed our society and have lasted, they were all done when we came together as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans or independents, but as Americans and got these things done. So as we think about our future, as we think about the kind of future we wanna build together, in the things we need to do, whether it be healthcare, whether it be dealing with opioids, whatever the case may be, we have to approach these things by finding common ground. Otherwise, you're not gonna get anything done, right? Otherwise, you'll just keep talking about these things. So I'm kind of staying in the solutions-oriented lane, right? I got a vision as to how to improve healthcare. I've got a vision as to how we combat climate change, right? I have a vision as to how we invest in communities that are left behind I have plans for dealing with technology and how it's fundamentally changing everything in our society. I have real plans. I can show the American people how I'm actually going to get it done. I was the third most bipartisan member of Congress. And what we need is solutions. We need to stop talking about this stuff, and we need to start getting it done. So I'm going to stay focused on that. And I think as people look at what I want to do, they'll see a progressive vision, but they'll see someone who can actually get it done.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Lynn. Next up is Bronson Stevens from New London.
1: Hello, Congressman. Hey, Bronson. Uh, Congressman, I'm a college student, so my question for you is what policies would you implement to combat the rising cost of tuition and, in general, make college more affordable? Great. What, uh, where do you go to school? Colby-Sawyer. Oh, super. Good school. What uh, grade are you in? Or what I'm level? a junior. You're a junior. Mm-hmm. Super. So this is what I would do. Let's start with public, e- public education broadly. Right? right now, we have K-12 through as the basic public education system in this country. I think that should be pre-K through 14. And what I mean by that is every kid should start as pre-K as a right of public education. It's the best investment we make. It fundamentally changes the trajectory of their education. But then after high school, I think every kid in America deserves at least two years of either community college or career and technical training as part of basic public education. So that's the first thing I would do. That would effectively make two years of college free for people who want to go the community college to four-year college route, right? And I think that would lower the burden of college expense significantly for a lot of young people. The other thing I want to do is I want to lower the rate on student loans. Right now, the federal government lends to you as a student, if you get student loans, at a rate that's marked up above the cost that where the federal government borrows. We don't do that for banks, for example. We lend to banks at the same rate we, the taxpayer borrows money at. For you as a student, I'd like to lend to you at the same rate we lend to banks. So a combination of making uh, two years of community college free, lowering the rates on student debt, will create a pathway for kids, right, to have a much kind of more affordable college experience. So that's what I'm committed to do. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Bronson. And now we have the much-anticipated question from Gail Austin. I really am Gail, Gail. Austin. <laughs> sorry, about that. Good morning. Sorry, Dennis. I didn't mean to get you guys mixed up there. Good morning. Good morning. I'd like to know from every candidate, but you this morning, how much money you
0: take from the IRA, uh, from the NRA, and what is your plan to reduce gun violence in this country?
1: It's a great question. Um, so the answer is I take no money from the NRA, and I never have, right? So. And and listen, they've never offered to give me money, not that I would have taken it, because of my policies. So where I stand on this issue is as follows. I think we should have universal background checks similar to the legislation that just passed in the House of Representatives. 97% of the American people support that. Literally 97% of the American people support universal background checks. The only reason we don't have them is because we have a broken democracy where there's way too much money from folks like the NRA buying the votes of elected officials to block it. So that's the first thing I want to do. The second thing I want to do is put a limitation on certain very high powered kind of military style assault weapons, which we don't need on our streets. And the third thing I want to do is push other kind of common sense measures like what we have in my state of Maryland, which are these red flag laws, Mm -hmm. which allow families, right, and just families, to go to the courts if someone in their family has a diagnosed mental health issue and they have a firearm, and they've threatened either themselves or someone else. The family can go to the court and actually have the court intervene right around that situation and take the firearm away. And in my home state of Maryland, it's been incredibly successful. So I support common sense gun safety measures that make our schools safe. Do you know how many moms and dads are worrying about sending their kids to school? Yes, sir. Again, I had this amazing conversation with this terrific officer this morning, and he was telling me he just saw an ad for bulletproof backpacks. Think about that. They're selling bulletproof backpacks. Why are they doing that? Because people are so anxious and they're so scared. And that's just terrible, right? That's just terrible. So we need universal background checks, right? We ought to put limitations on certain types of weapons. And we ought to do things like red flag laws. That'll start making our schools safer. And then we also have to deal with the mental health crisis in this country. 40 million people are suffering from a mental illness in the United States of America. So those are some of the things I'm gonna do as president so that people aren't advertising for bulletproof backpacks in the future. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Gail. And a quick follow-up on this, Congressman. How do you identify uh, these at-risk people, do you think? Besides just families with the red flag laws, how do you identify these people that commit these mass shootings?
1: Well, you know, look at that, I mean, that's why we have a mental, that's why we need a more robust mental health system, right? so that we can actually start intervening with people who really show signs of having a risk. But I do think these red flag laws, I mean, in my state, I think last year, 180, it was used 180 times. It's a high standard. You know, you just can't go into court and and get the judge to take the firearm away from your family member. You've got to go there and make a case. And the case is based on the fact that there's a diagnosed mental illness. They have a firearm, and they've done something specifically to threaten either themselves or someone else but it's a good example of a smart policy. And we need more of those kind of things where you have actually identification and intervention right at the local level. So clearly we need background checks, clearly we need limitations on high powered assault weapons, but we also have to be being smarter about identifying some of these situations before they happen.
0: How do you do winter? Outside? Inside? Either way, we've got fresh ideas, served up hot
1: or cold.
0: You ready? You're after winter adventures, packed with powder, or once brewed fresh, looking for action, or a break from it, need a place to chill, or somewhere to warm up, make the season better. With New Hampshire Chronicle, get more out of winter. Here okay, we're going to get right into 30 full minutes of questions, commercial free, and we're going to start with Joan Kremlisk.
1: Thank you. And welcome to New Hampshire. Um, nice to see you, Joe. <laughs>
0: How would you secure the southern border um, so that illegal cargo and um, undocumented people cannot come across the border?
1: So the first thing I would do to secure our southern border is talk to experts. Right, I don't think politicians should be making this decision. I think we should have experts making the decision. And I think if you talk to experts, this is what they tell you. What we should do mostly is have technology solutions. Right, technology solutions, particularly across parts of our border that are incredibly environmentally sensitive, are much more effective, not only cost-effective, but actually effective than building barriers. So things like high-powered cameras, utilizing drones, things like that can secure most of our borders in an incredibly cost-effective and effective manner in terms of uh, monitoring what's going on the border. We probably need more personnel right, at certain parts, particularly at ports of entry, where a lot of illegal drugs are coming in right where we need more technology as well and probably in certain places a barrier right so i think if we got a bunch of experts around the table and we said hey we want to spend this the following amount of money how should we do it i think they'd come back with a combination of technology solutions maybe some barriers in a couple of spots and more personnel they'd have a focus on ports of entry i think because that's where most of the problem is right now right if you look at where illegal drugs are coming through they're coming through ports of entry Right, so that's where we need to make more investments. So as president, as someone who cares about ensuring that our borders are secure, I would do the smart thing. And the smart thing is to talk to experts, get their recommendations. For example, I talked to a company that's running a pilot along the border using technology, high powered cameras and drones. Right, in their part of the border where they're running the pilot, crossings are down 95%. They believe they can install that whole system across the border for $200 million. Right, So that's what you do if you actually don't use the border as a political issue and you're actually trying to do the right thing, use the taxpayer money as wisely as possible and actually secure our border. That's what I would do as president. Thank you.
0: Okay, next up is a social media question. You're attracting some attention from Republicans here. State Rep. Jess Edwards of Auburn, not sure if this is a fastball, a curveball, or a softball here, he says, how great a job do you think President Trump is doing?
1: <clears throat> Which camera do I look at, first of all, when I answer <laughs> yeah, the question? I, go, yeah, go ahead. Take it away. Yeah. Got it. So um, I don't think President Trump is doing a good job at all. And the, the main reason I think he's doing a terrible job is because I think he lacks a moral compass and he's indecent, right? I think what the American people deserve is a president who actually operates with a moral compass and is decent, right, and, and projects a sense of respect and civility and honor to the office of the presidency. I also think he doesn't tell the truth. I mean, I'm very different than the current president, and I just don't mean the hairline. I have a plan for the future, which I don't believe he does. I think he wants to turn the clock backwards, right? I bring people together. I spent my whole career bringing people together. I think he's a divider. I think he wakes up every day and tries to figure out how to divide the American people. And I think what a president should do is wake up every day and effectively swear never to divide the American people and to do whatever they can to bring the American people together And I don't think he's honest with the American people and I promise to always tell you the truth. So those kind of attributes of who he is as a person, that's what I actually think is the worst side of him. Now I don't agree with his policy. Some of his policies I I have less issue with. I think his approach to North Korea, while I was very worried about the outcome he might negotiate, I don't think it's bad to engage. I know he's been criticized around, you know, why you're meeting with him and all that kind of stuff. I think engagement is fine. So I'm not someone who wakes up every day and says everything he does is wrong. But I think the biggest problem with him as our leader is he doesn't have the values that we as Americans hold so dear and that we need our leader to project every day to us. We need a unifier. We need someone who tells the truth, right, someone who's going to stand up for hate right? Someone who's going to try to do everything they possibly can to restore a sense of common purpose to who we are as a people, and someone who has a moral compass. And I don't think he has any of those things.
0: Our next question comes from William Fortune.
1: Good morning.
0: morning, William. Uh, France has had one of the lowest carbon footprints of any industrial nation for many years. What will you do to get the United States designed, greenhouse gas-free? economical, walk-away-safe, factory-built, electric-generating plants brought back from countries like China and built in New Hampshire
1: so we can power the world with clean electricity? All right, good question. So I'm call- let me tell you what my goal is. <clears throat> right, my goal is to have net zero emissions by 2050. That's a goal that the United States can achieve. We can achieve that with respect to the electrical grid earlier than that. Right? We can get to net zero on the electoral grid much sooner than that. But I want it for the whole country, net zero by 2050. And the United States of America is, is the country that is in the best position to do it of any country in the world. We have the resource portfolio that you need to do this. So let me tell you what my plan is to do that. First thing I wanna do in my first year as president is pass a carbon tax. Very similar to the bipartisan carbon tax bill I introduced in the Congress, right? which is the only bipartisan bill. And I believe I can get that done with every Democrat and all the coastal Republicans. That will cut carbon emissions by 90% and have a particular efe- uh, focus on the electrical industry, obviously, because that's what the carbon tax will really get at right away. It's bipartisan, puts, it puts a price on carbon, takes all the money we raise and give it back to the American people. So it's called a carbon tax dividend structure. That's the first thing. The second thing I wanna do is part of a national infrastructure plan, build a lot of weather resilient infrastructure, because we're gonna have to deal with the effects of climate. The third thing I wanna do is increase the Department of Energy research budget by fivefold, Right, because we need new innovation around storage technologies and energy transmission technologies. We need a whole new electric grid in this country and we need some more innovation to make it happen. And then the fourth thing I wanna do is create a market for companies that run negative emissions technologies to actually get paid to take carbon out of the atmosphere. These technologies exist right now. The problem is they're way too expensive. But if we actually create a market for these things, what these things are are basically machines that take carbon out of the atmosphere, right? And then they, then they put the carbon back in the earth. And the technologies exist, but they're really expensive. But wind and solar used to be really expensive as well. But what did we do? We created a market for them through tax credits and then the private economy started innovating, and the cost in wind and solar have come way down. I wanna do the same thing for negative emissions technologies, which are not talked a lot about as part of the solution, but in many ways, they're, they're what we need to get to net zero by 2050. So I have a plan, it's very specific, it's got kinda of four aspects to it, carbon tax, resilient infrastructure, more research in storage and transmission, and creating a market for uh, negative emission technologies. I believe those four things working together will allow the United States of America across the next 20 or 30 years to replace our entire energy kind of infrastructure, if you will, with renewables and other technologies to get us to net zero. Thank you, sir. Thank you,
0: William. We've got another social media question coming in. Jeanette Moran asks, what are you going to do
1: to help disabled people who can't afford their rent? Well, affordable housing is a crisis right now in the United States of America. Right, it's a crisis. It's happening in a lot of communities that have had really good economic growth actually. Right, so it's kind of the other side of the coin of having a really good economy. You know, so you see it in places like Seattle where workers are driving three hours, right, to get to work because they can't afford to live anywhere near the city. But it's also happening in other communities. And it's happening uh, particularly for people who are, uh, are suffering, or, or not suffering, but have a disability. And so one of the things I've called for is a very significant increase in the amount of money that goes towards affordable housing. So I introduced a bipartisan bill that reforms our housing finance system. And again, it's bipartisan, you'll hear me say that a lot because I actually wanna get things done. And if you look back over our history, the only way we got anything done is when we came together. And so what my bill does is basically reform housing finance, you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, all those things which need reform. And as part of that reform, it creates billions of dollars a year for affordable housing, which we're going to give to the, all 50 states for them to effectively distribute the way they think makes the most sense. And programs where we need it are to put more money behind programs with, that help Americans with disability and their housing. So that's one of the plans I have around that issue.
0: Next question is from Carolyn Moore. Hello, Carol.
1: Hi, Carol or Carolyn? Carolyn. Carolyn.
0: Yes. Uh, you, you brought this up a little earlier, but mine's on Medicaid Part D. And it prohibits us negotiating our prices. If that's repealed so that you can negos- negotiate prices, how will
1: that affect
0: the rest of Part D?
1: Well, <coughs> so that's why you've you got to think about this holistically. And what I mean by that is, think about what I said happens around the world. So you got the world Mm -hmm. and pharmaceuticals get sold all over the world. And if in a bunch of countries, they cap the prices at really low prices, then what the pharmaceutical companies do is they raise them everywhere else to make their profit margins. And so you can't just solve one part of the issue because all they do is raise the prices. So if we just allowed the government to negotiate Medicare drug prices, which I'm 100% for, then inevitably pharmaceutical prices are gonna go up somewhere else. So that's why we also have to think of this holistically. That's why I think it's a global issue, right? That's why as as a president, one of the things I wanna do is basically either through trade and tariffs or by doing something very simple, which is to propose a tax. And this is how the tax would work we're gonna tax pharmaceutical companies at 100% of the difference between where they sell drugs here and where they sell them in the G20. So if they're selling a drug for $30 in the G20, again, those are the wealthy countries in the world, and they're selling it for $100 here, then that $70 gets taxed at 100%. Now they're not gonna wanna pay that tax, so you know what they're gonna do? They're gonna raise the prices there and lower them here. So there's no difference. But that's the kind of stuff I'm thinking about because you're right. If we lower prices one place, it may not affect it anywhere else. So you have to think of it across the board.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you, Carolyn.
0: Next question comes from Becca Budrock. Hi, Congressman Delaney. Thank you very much uh, for being here today. Uh, I'm an environmental science student, so environmental issues are really near and dear to my heart. So my question for you is, what are your plans to increase the availability of local food across the country?
1: It's a great issue. Uh, and And it's an issue that most of the American people are behind you on, right? Because if you think about the growth, and I represented a district in Maryland that had a lot of small family farms, right? And a lot of these farms were about an hour or two hours outside of Washington, DC. So this was an issue that they really cared about because they had a huge opportunity to be delivering their food fresh to market to this big city with all this demand. So I think we need, you know, we need policies, uh, farm policies really, that support these kind of people. I mean, with the technologies we have now, which you're probably aware of, the amount of sustainable farming we can do in urban settings, right? It, it's just, it's transformative, right? It's changing how we, we think about farming. And you, you, we see it all over New Hampshire here. So I'm in favor of policies that support that type of sustainable development, because it's not only results in healthier food, it's all the kind of food we all wanna eat, but it actually gets a climate change, Right, Because one of the big issues with the agricultural industry, is, in addition to kind of how things are farmed, et cetera, is a lot of the transportation stuff that's associated with it that has a very big carbon footprint. So I think it's great. I think it's a really exciting trend in this country right now. And, it, and it's wonderful that so many consumers are interested in it because that's what really creates the opportunity for it to grow. Great question. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Becca. We've got another social media question coming in. This one from Instagram and user Maple60. Uh, uh, this uh, user asks, what does he see as his number one priority
1: for the country? Well, the, my number one priority for the country is to try to bring us back together, right, because we're so divided. I think the central issue facing this country is how terribly divided we are as a people, right? And you hear it everywhere. Right? You, you have it in your own private conversations when you're at a coffee shop or at, you know, at work or at school. The divisions have become so deep in this country that they're literally tearing us apart. So I think we need a president that actually wants to bring us together. And I got some specific ideas as to how we do that. Right? The first thing is when I'm inaugurated, I wanna look out the American people and say, I represent every one of you, whether you voted for me or not. And to prove it, in my first 100 days, My priority is gonna be these following five or six things. Right, this is in the first three months. The whole tone of the presidency in many ways is determined by the first three months. I'm gonna have five or six existing bills in the Congress that deal with big things. Climate, my carbon tax bill. I wanna double the earned income tax credit, which is the most successful anti-poverty program we have in this country. I wanna build infrastructure. Right, I wanna fix our criminal justice system and I wanna do immigration reform. Those five priorities There's good ideas in the Congress right now that are bipartisan. Wouldn't it be amazing if a president looked at the American people and said, in my first hundred days, I'm gonna focus on things we agree with each other on. I'm gonna focus on things we agree with each other on. And I've taken bills that exist in the Congress that your good-minded Democrats and Republicans have worked on for years. And that's gonna be my agenda. And we're gonna get those done. And we're gonna prove to the American people that we can start working again. And then I wanna reform government, I wanna take on too much money in politics, I wanna take on gerrymandering, I wanna take on voter suppression, things that kind of bend the will of the democracy away from the American people. And then I'm also calling for national service. Right, as I said to the gentleman when we talked about um, college affordability, one of the things I wanna do is have a national service program, not mandatory, but really an exciting program where kids can serve their country. It'll bring us together, it'll be something we're proud of, and it'll help that generation of young Americans. So that's my proposal.
0: Quick follow-up there, Congressman. You mentioned wanting to pass these bills that exist in Congress already.
1: Uh, Why have they
0: not passed
1: so far? You know, as someone who's running on the fundamental premise that we actually have to start doing things, right? Because if you look back what's happened in this country, it's really pretty simple. The world's changed rapidly because of technology and globalization, and we didn't prepare our citizens for it which is why so many people have been left behind. And why didn't we prepare our citizens for it? Because we stopped doing things. We haven't updated our public education system, right? I mean, I did a round table here in Portsmouth talking to teachers about the additional burdens they have as teachers in 2019, right? They're not just dealing with what happens in the classroom, they're dealing with so many other things. We haven't updated that. We haven't updated our environmental policies to deal with climate change. Right, I did a round table here in New Hampshire talking about that. Right, we haven't dealt with our healthcare system. I mean, my dad was a union electrician. He had one job for 60 years. It made sense to have your healthcare tied to your job. But I think one of my four daughters, one of them may have 10 jobs. She should not have your healthcare tied to your job. Imagine your car insurance tied to your job. It's a crazy system. So in many ways, the genius of America was that we allowed capitalism historically to do its magic, creates jobs and innovate. But we moderated it with tax policy, regulation, workers' rights, and societal infrastructure that was built so that the American people had a shot. We stopped doing all that. And so we gotta get back to doing things. And the reason these things haven't gotten done is because people put their political party ahead of their country, they care more about partisanship, and we need a president who's actually running on this philosophy of leadership which is to find common ground and get things done. And then we can start getting some of these things done.
0: Next question comes from Clara Monier. Good morning, Representative. As you can see by my hair, I'm a senior citizen and I'm concerned about the social security system. Um, Some organizations have been predicting that it will reduce its benefits by 2035.
1: Yes. Do you see this as a problem and how would you solve it <laughs> since you're proposing yourself as a problem solver? Well, it's a, it is a problem. It's not as big of a problem as people like to scare you into thinking. But it is a problem. And I actually, again, kind of coming back to this theme of kind of working together, I have the only bipartisan bill in the Congress that actually deals with it with a gentleman named Tom Cole, a great Republican from Oklahoma. He and I have a bill to extend the solvency of Social Security by 75 years. So just coming back to Social Security, I mean, Social Security is is maybe the greatest anti-poverty program we've had as a country. When it was put in place, 50% of our seniors lived in poverty. Today, it's about 10%. It's fantastic, right? It's a fantastic program. But across time, we've always made adjustments to it. Why did we do that? Because it's basically social insurance. It's not an entitlement program. People pay into it like an insurance program and then they get money out, right? But as, we've, as things have changed, as people live longer and the ratio of people working to, in retirement have changed, we've made adjustments. The last time we did that was in the early 80s, right? Back then we had a very similar situation and the poverty rate of seniors was 20%. We adjust, made adjustments. They extended the solvency for 50 years on a bipartisan basis and the poverty rate of our seniors has been cut from 20 to 10%, which proves we can actually strengthen Social Security and not hurt the program. So again, it's not as big of a problem as people think, right, because historically, Social Security is still solvent. But on an annual basis, what's starting to happen is more money is getting paid out than is being taken in. And by, as you said, 2030 to 2035, then it actually becomes insolvent. And by law, they have to cut benefits to make it solvent. They project that cut to be 25%, which is ridiculous. It's immoral, we can never do that. We can't just wake up and cut the benefits of our seniors by 25%. So we have to deal with it now. The sooner we deal with it, the better. The sooner we deal with it, the easier. And like most things, I've stepped forward, found common ground, and have a plan to extend the solvency for 75 years because I wanna push this out to the next century. Great question, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Clara. Next question comes from Richard Savory. Hello, Richard. Hi, Mr. Delaney. Um, I grew up in a family of Kennedy-style Democrats, Yep. my dad and my whole family. Nowadays, all you hear is all kinds of socialist ideals, and all the politicians they see me running have all these socialist uh, you know, programs they want to put out where are the real Democrats running for office so we can get our party back to where we
0: work for the people?
1: Well, here's one of them. And I mean, to some extent, this discussion about socialism versus capitalism is a real distraction. Because pure socialism, right, in its pure form, which is government-controlling production, is a terrible idea. And it's the wrong answer to every question. But if you really look at the United States of America historically, we've been a capitalistic country with strong social programs. And that's all we gotta do, that's what we gotta get back to. I mean, capitalism is the greatest innovation and job creation machine ever. And it is the reason the United States is the strongest nation in the world. But we always, as I said, moderated capitalism, right? Because left to its own devices, it's highly disruptive. We moderated capitalism with appropriate tax policy Right, make, having a tax code that's fair, appropriate regulations, making sure workers have rights, and by building societal infrastructure. Social Security is societal infrastructure. Public education is societal infrastructure. Medicare is societal infrastructure. And what's happened over the last 20 years is we stopped doing that stuff. We've been fighting, we haven't done anything, and so there's been too much disruption caused by kind of capitalism being unchecked, if you will. So my solution is not to get rid of capitalism, that's a terrible idea, and replace it with socialism, that's a disaster. But what we should do is make capitalism more just and inclusive, and the way you do that is with tax policy, regulations, and importantly, societal infrastructure. I wanna build the public education system for the next century, right? I wanna build the healthcare system for the next century. I mean, I was at Elliott Hospital a couple of weeks ago, right, Ta- walking around and hearing about what it's like to be running a community hospital these days, right. There's things we got to do, and that's what my presidency is about. It's much more consistent with the kind of worldview that President Kennedy had. You know, President Kennedy in 1958 gave a speech in Baltimore, Maryland, where he said, we shouldn't seek the Republican answer, we shouldn't seek the Democratic answer, we should seek the right answer. We shouldn't refight the battles of the past, we should own our responsibility for the future. And that's my approach. Let's find the right answer, no matter where it comes from, let's bring people together and let's focus on building the future. And we don't have to throw out the model that's made this country great. We just have to update it for the world we live in today. Thank you, Richard. Thank you.
0: Richard, thank you. We have another social media question coming in. This one from Nate Michaels on tax policy. He asks, what is the exact percentage you would consider a fair share? I always hear about not paying my fair share. I would like to know what that is.
1: Well, let me tell you the part, you said Nate, right? Nate. Nate, let me tell you the part of our tax code that's not fair. And that is that if you invest money for a living, in many cases you pay about half in your tax rate as people who work for a living. That's not fair. That to me is the biggest loophole in our tax system. I would definitely be in favor of rolling back the tax cuts for high earners that this last Republican tax cut bill put forth, no question about it. But if you really want to address structural unfairness in the tax code, it's not by just raising rates. It's by doing something called the Buffett Rule, named after Warren Buffett. And what Warren Buffett said, very simple, he goes, why is my tax rate half my assistance tax rate? He goes, why does that make sense? And he's right. So what Warren Buffett proposed is that People who invest for a living, like him, and so many other people in this country, particularly as wealth become more concentrated, and they live off investments and earnings, they don't live off wages, they live off investments, and huge investments. They pay a capital gains rate that's a lot lower than what workers pay. And that's not fair. So Nate, that's what I'm gonna target. There's a lot of money there, And that'll create a more fair society because I think people who work for a living shouldn't pay more in tax than people who invest for a living.
0: Okay. Uh, Our next question comes from Leonard Morrill. Uh, And after this, Congressman Delaney, you've got about three minutes to answer. We'll we'll step against our full hour.
1: Good morning. A lot of it you've already answered, but uh, for Medicare for All, how much do you think it will actually cost and how do you propose to pay for it? I don't support Medicare for All. And uh, the reason I don't, supported is not only do we not have a way to pay for it, but it's bad policy. And again, a big part of my campaign is being honest about the problems and honest about the solutions. So right now, Medicaid, which is the largest program, pays 80% of costs. So if you go to Elliott Hospital and you say, what, what, how does Medicaid pay you? They're like, well, they don't pay our costs. We take the patients because we are a community hospital. Medicare, very successful program, pays 95% of costs. Commercial insurance pays 115% of cost. So there's no evidence that if the government was the only payer of the bills, that it would ever pay cost. And that would lead to worse quality healthcare and limited access. So again, if you go to Elliott Hospital and say, what did you get paid last year for Medicare for the same procedure as compared to commercial insurance? They'd say half. i say, well, what if you, all your bills were paid at that Medicare rate? A lot of hospitals would close. So that's why I favor a universal health care system where everyone gets health care as a right, but they can opt out and get private insurance or buy supplementals. And I got a plan to fully pay for that by, by eliminating the corporate deductibility of health care. See, that's smart health care policy. And it gives everyone universal health care. It's not Medicare for all, which I think is bad policy for the reasons I just talked about.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: We've
0: got a little bit of time left. Uh, you've been all over this country. I'm very curious. As you campaign in all 50 states, what's the most interesting place you've been so far that you've said, "Gosh, I want to come back here again"? Maybe when I'm not a candidate.
1: Well, I'll tell you. I'm getting a hint here. (laughs) Somebody should say New Hampshire. Yeah. You don't don't feel obligated. (laughs) Well, New Hampshire is obviously one of the most interesting places I've been to, and one of the most beautiful places I've been to. But I gotta say, I was in Detroit a couple of uh, maybe a month and a half ago. I was driving my dad's truck. My dad was a union electrician. He had a pickup truck his whole life. He passed away two years ago. And I drove his truck out to a trip I was doing to Iowa. And I stopped in Detroit. And I met with a group called the Entrepreneurs of Color, which were minority entrepreneurs operating businesses in some of the worst neighborhoods of Detroit. And as a former entrepreneur, I started two companies. I took them public. I was the youngest CEO on the New York Stock Exchange. I, I love spending time with entrepreneurs. And I got to say, so there were 52 Small businesses started by this entrepreneur of color fund in the worst neighborhoods of Detroit. 51 of them were successful out of 52. So I was like, well, they got a pretty good special sauce here. So I said I would come, I I actually, when I walked out, I said, I have to come back here, because I gotta get a better understanding of what you're doing. But I actually think entrepreneurship is, uh, is one of the most important things in our country right now. And so part of my campaign is about going around the country and finding the best ideas to help create more entrepreneurs, including here in New Hampshire. But I gotta say, as far as beauty is concerned, you can't beat this state. And I'm gonna go to all 50 states. I've pledged to go to all 50 states because I think a president should campaign everywhere. I've I've been to all 50 states in my life, but as part of my campaign, I've been to about 20. So I'm gonna do the next 30 in the next year. But I gotta say, I was here a couple weeks ago and I was driving, you had a snowstorm. And we were just driving around, and I was taking pictures and, and sending it to my team. I was like, it doesn't get better than campaigning in New Hampshire after, with some fresh snow on the ground. So, yep.
0: Well over 200 towns in this state, and mm-hmm. as the late, great Senator John McCain once said, each town is its own political universe. So well, you
1: do, have a, you do have a very unique political system here. Someone here didn't trust government, <laughs> right? Because, I mean, they created a system... That has a lot of checks and balances, let's put it that way. Okay. Congressman John Adam, Lenny, thank we you. greatly appreciate this conversation. It was wonderful. Thank you all for being thank here. Thank
0: you. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.